This is Lynn Rottem from the House of Literature. I have a short message for all of you listeners. While we are thrilled to have made this podcast with Lynn Ullman and so proud and happy with all the great interviews she has done so far, she's also a writer and she has a novel to finish. So for the rest of this year, Lynn Ullman will be taking a break from the podcast to figure out how to proceed with her half-finished novel. But don't worry, that doesn't mean that the podcast is taking a break. We will keep the literary conversation going with wonderful international guests while we open up for different moderators. To keep with the core of this podcast, which is writers talking to writers, we and Lynn Ullman have found three great guest moderators for the coming episodes. Already in this episode, you will meet the award-winning British Somali novelist Nadifa Mohammed in conversation with Arundhati Roy. You can read more about Nadifa and the two other guest moderators in our show notes. Stay safe and let the world in through our podcast. And now, back to the podcast. You know, people people always ask me this uh, about this journey, you know, from architecture to acting to screenwriting to fiction to nonfiction. And, and I always say that, you know, the thing is, the inquiry has always been the same. You just carry it through into different art forms. And s- sometimes you think, what is the most effective way of, of doing this? You know, is it a movie? Is it a building? Is it a novel? Is it an essay? You know? You just heard the voice of the Indian author Arundhati Roy, who is my guest on this episode of How to Proceed. In this episode, she talks about fathers, fascism, beauty, love, and the search for words. And as you might hear, I'm not Lynn Ullman, who created this podcast together with the House of Literature. My name is Nadifa Mohammed, and I am thrilled to be doing this interview with one of the people who has inspired me the most as a writer. Roy has written two novels 20 years apart, The God of Small Things in 1997 and The Ministry of Utmost Happiness in 2017. The first won the Man Booker Prize, and the latter was shortlisted for the same prize. In the years between and after, however, Roy has written a number of non-fiction works on issues such as nuclear weapons, Kashmiri independence, US foreign policy, environmentalism, democracy, and more. And as she states in her lecture, My Seditious Heart, delivered at the House of Literature in 2017, and in her later essay collection by the same name, Arundhati Roy sees the term writer-activist as redundant. It's a bit like saying... I'm a sofa bed, she says. To her, her literary and non-fiction work are not separate, but they are part of the same project. Through both her novels and her essays, with immense knowledge and human warmth, Roy has explored the human condition in refreshing and astonishing ways. In her latest essay collection, Azadi, she touches upon the same cure as this podcast, the role of fiction in these disturbing times. The pandemic, she writes, is a portal between one world and another. For all the illness and devastation it has left in its wake, it is an invitation to the human race, an opportunity to image another world. I can think of none other I'd rather be talking to right now about reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now, in the historic year 2020.
Welcome to the How to Proceed podcast, Arundhati Roy. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. First of all, one of the ritual questions of the podcast is, where are you right now? I'm at home in Delhi. Could you describe your view? Well, it's a nice view, actually. I look out onto a little uh, park. Uh, I'm a little bit worried because it's the day after Diwali, and so I'm hoping there aren't any fireworks, but... It's also raining, so perhaps there won't be fireworks, but there will be thunder. Mm -hmm. And what are you reading? Well, right now I'm reading two things. Mm -hmm. Uh, One is a manuscript of what's looking like a very good book on on caste. Right. Non-fiction. Yeah, both are non-fiction, actually. And the other is a is The Count of the Red Tsar, the biography, the new biography of Stalin. <laughs> not not easy reading then. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm trying to get perspective, you know. When you're when you think you're going through hard times, then you have to figure out what other human beings have been through, you know. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I was watching a fantastic documentary series um about Berlin in 1945 mm. using documentary footage, personal letters, recordings of people who were involved in different aspects of the invasion yeah and it's really fascinating it's really fascinating yeah actually I've been living in around that period for a while somehow Mm -hmm. why I don't know you know because you get you get so interested when you start uh, reading I started with fiction with Vasily Grossman's Stalingrad then Life and Fate then uh, you know like thousands and thousands of pages of Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler. So you just, you sort of just get involved in in something and then you want to know about it from every side. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And also, I mean, honestly, it's also because the ideologies that we are beginning to see rising up in this part of the world. And all over. Yeah, all all over, actually, right? And so you need to... (laughs) get a grip on, you know, what happened historically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think I can empathize with you because I'm someone who's always complained about the state of the world. And it's only now that people are really starting to worry <laughs> in a more general sense. So does that feel you, how does that make you feel? The fact that you could see the direction that things were going in for decades now? Well, it 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 worries me, you know, still because it's not as if the the people who mocked or or belittled the people who saw this coming uh, are not mocking and belittling them now, you know. Right. So sure. there's there's a sense of dread that uh, you know still people haven't really understood the ramifications of what's going on and also here you know the problem is that the falseness of a lot of the popular understanding of history uh, of dominant cultures of everything that's happening is so much part of this uh, now increasingly obviously fascist ideology you know mm-hmm. it, it works at so many levels it's not just hindu nationalism you know but yes inside that is contained caste inside caste is contained the idea that it is possible 
for human beings to think of themselves as superior because it was divinely ordained to be so, and that is so mm. fascist, you know, and even mm-hmm. liberals have practiced that. Yes. I was watching an interview that you did years ago on the 50th anniversary of India's independence with Salman Rushdie, and you described then wanting to, if you know, the people around you, the educated, intellectual friends and acquaintances that you had that would surprise you with the hateful, Islamophobic things that they would say and you would tell them to take their plate and eat outside. Yeah. <laughs> Do you still tell people <laughs> to take their plate and eat outside? Well, you know, that was... Uh, now those lines are so deeply drawn, you know. Mm-hmm. So one has, uh, you know, those were, those were, you thought, I thought anyway, occasional people who just sort of wandered into your life. Yes. But now everyone is battling that in their homes, in their bedrooms, uh, you know, in their classrooms. Mm. Uh, so we're the ones who are sort of outside, actually. Right. <laughs> It's you that are eating outside. Yeah. Have you lost friendships? Um, a few. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, really when this whole thing began to to become so uh, dreadful i was swimming fast in the opposite direction for so many years so in a way i'd say uh, on balance i've gained more friends than i've lost because yes uh, you know those of us who have moved into those spaces of 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 taking a position of standing up of keeping some steel in your spine then tend to become very close friends you know looking out for each other mm. so yes i mean on balance um i've gained many 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 more friends than i've lost i'm glad to hear that i think friendships are the main thing that have got me through this year this year has been incredibly hard in both big ways and small ways for me yeah. what do you think has got you through this year Well, uh, I don't know if we are through this year yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are seven scary months, sorry, seven scary weeks still left of it. No, I mean, in the sense that one doesn't think of this Western calendar as the year, you know. So uh-huh. I think there's a, we are just going through this, uh, this tunnel and, you know, learning to lose, but not lose hope. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there are things that I think are very profound uh, lessons, too, in this whole COVID thing. You know, how things have fallen away in terms of what you thought you needed or wanted or the ways in which you thought you wanted to be, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's been uh, in some ways calming, but it's al- it's always bewildering, too, to watch. I think the most bewildering thing is... Uh, the questions that someone like myself has to ask myself, which is that you watch people being humiliated, you watch people being crushed, impoverished, uh, broken in so many ways, and yet you see how much they love uh, sometimes the people that are doing it to them. You know, mm. and it's a question that is 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 hard to answer because you you have to ask yourself what eventually is it that people care deeply about? You know, yes, you can't just be judgmental. Like you have to understand or try and understand what that is. 
Absolutely. And I think it's a big question and one that I don't instinctively understand because I hate being dominated. But some people right. find comfort in that and find comfort in being told they don't they don't have to ask for too much and they won't be given too much. Yeah, but something there's something perhaps I mean, I'm not talking about in a personal way, in a mm. personal relationships, but I'm saying, you know, for example, when uh, Modi announced the lockdown in four hours and 10 million people had to walk thousands of kilometers home and yes. so many people died on the way. It's horrific, horrific. You know, and yet, you know, or, or when demonetization was announced, when the economy had its spine broken, we have, yes. you know, mm. and yet there's some strange sense of stability here, you know. You expected it to be otherwise you expected anger and restlessness mm -hmm. and yet there's a sort of worshipfulness yes which is hard to understand but which one must understand and try to anyway yeah. and you, you don't think that people's personal ways of dealing with power and their own sense of self and you know the intimate relationships which often they have to put up with things that they don't want to, whether that's professional, romantic, familial relationships, play a part in this political, I don't know what the right word is, um, acceptance. Well, I mean, I'd say, I'd say yes, that was so and has been so for a long time. But right now we are seeing something else, you know. We're seeing a kind of the redirection of anger that ought to be, directed at, you know, people in power that have made decisions, uh, very disastrous decisions, but that hatred is being redirected to towards minorities, towards, you know, people who can be bullied. There's a sense of the idea of the rising Hindu nation being more important than everything else and so on. So I think... I mean, these are old, uh, that's why I'm reading, you know, about Germany. And If you look at, you know, the numbers of people that Stalin sent to their death and how still in the camps the, they, they, they said long live Stalin, even just as they were being shot, you know. Mm. And these are very profound lessons in mass psychology, I think. Yes, and I've seen a similar... Is it? I don't know if it's loyalty or delusion in people who followed cult leaders such as David Koresh yes. in Waco mm. or Jim Jones who managed to persuade hundreds of people to kill themselves and their family members. Yeah, I think we are in a psychologically interesting moment, not just mm -hmm. politically or economically or sociologically. You know? Yes, mm. yes. This may be the perfect moment actually for you to read from Azadi, the essay called The Graveyard Talks Back. Yes. In this part, I'm talking about, uh, you know, the attack on on independent journalists, people like Gauri Lankesh who were assassinated, several others who were killed, and the kind of ways in which writers and journalists are threatened. Assassination is, of course, the extreme end of the spectrum. So, and then I give a few examples of what happens with me because, you know, the fact that I'm a well-known person, uh, you know, protects me and makes me vulnerable because, you know, attack on someone like me gets you in the news and it's like a job or application and so on. 
And so I was talking about how uh, a BJP uh, Hindu nationalist member of parliament suggested that I should be tied to a jeep in Kashmir and used as a human shield and, you know, television channels are debating the pros and cons of this. So this is this part I'm reading. Uh, all this is nothing compared to what millions of people in India are having to live through. I mention it only in order to think aloud about how this continuous unceasing threat affects writers and their writing. Each one of us reacts differently, of course. Speaking for myself, as the pressure mounts and the windows are shut one by one, every cell of my writing brain seems to want to force them open again. Does that shrink or expand writers, sharpen or blunt them? Most people, I imagine, believe it would restrict a writer's range and imagination, steal away those moments of intimacy and contemplation without which a literary text does not amount to very much. I've often caught myself wondering if I were to be incarcerated or driven underground, would it liberate my writing? Would what I write become simpler, more lyrical perhaps, and less negotiated? It's possible, but right now, as we struggle to keep the windows open, I believe our liberation lies in the negotiation. Hope lies in texts that can accommodate and keep alive our intricacy, our complexity, and our density against the onslaught of the terrifying, sweeping simplifications of fascism. As they barrel towards us, speeding down their straight, smooth highway, we greet them with our beehive, our maids, we keep our complicated world with all it seems exposed alive in our writing. After 20 years of writing fiction and non-fiction that tracks the rise of Hindu nationalism, after years of reading about the rise and fall of European fascism, I've begun to wonder why fascism, although it is by no means the same everywhere, is so recognizable across histories and cultures. It's not just the fascists that are recognizable, the strong man, the ideological army, the squalid dreams of Aryan superiority, the dehumanization and ghettoization of the quote-unquote internal enemy, the massive and utterly ruthless propaganda machine, the false flag attacks and assassinations, the fawning businessmen and film stars, the attacks on universities, the fear of intellectuals, the specter of detention camps and the hate-fueled zombie population that chants the Eastern equivalent of Heil, Heil, Heil. It's also the rest of us, the exhausted, quarreling opposition, the vain, nitpicking left, the equivocating liberals who spent years building the road that has led to the situation we find ourselves in and are now behaving like shocked, righteous rabbits who never imagined that rabbits were an important ingredient of rabbit stew that was always on the menu. And of course, the wolves who ignored the decent folks' counsel of moderation and sloped off into the wilderness to howl unceasingly, futilely, and if they were female, then, quote, shrilly and hysterically at the terrifying misshapen moon. All of us 
are recognizable. So at the end of it all, is fascism a kind of feeling in the way anger, fear, and love are feelings that manifest itself in recognizable ways across cultures? Does a country fall into fascism the way a person falls in love? Or more accurately, in hate? Has India fallen in hate? Because truly the most palpable feeling in the air is the barbaric hatred the current regime and its supporters show towards a section of the population. Equally palpable now is the love that has risen to oppose this. You can see it in people's eyes, hear it in protesters' song and speech. It's a battle of those who know how to think against those who know how to hate. A battle of lovers against haters. It's an unequal battle because the love is on the street and vulnerable. The hate is on the street too, but it's armed to the teeth and protected by all the machinery of the state. Thank you, Arundhati. It's a powerful reading. Does a country fall into fascism the way a person falls into love? Hmm. I think I use the term fascist probably a little bit too loosely, mm. but to me, again, it's an instinctive reaction and it, it's manifested in different places by different people. So in Somaliland, when I visit it's manifested in the way that people treat street girls and street boys. Yeah. In Britain, it's the way that, you know, this is ridiculously um, stupid conversation at the moment about museums and the National Trust and how open they should be about how the wealth um, exhibited in these spaces mm. is reported on and described by those institutions and whether they should give some of those looted Art, artworks and religious artifacts back to the countries from which they were yes, taken. Yes. So fascism is this slippery thing that's... How much do you think it resides in people's psychology? You know, I think, uh, I think that uh, there are uh, ways of using it loosely and then there are ways of recognising it for what it is. Mm -hmm. And here, for example, the RSS, which is the biggest cultural guild to which uh, it's the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. It's a Hindu nationalist uh, sort of militia. Yes. And Modi, the prime minister, has been part of it since, you know, I think since ever he turned an adult. And they are, you know, openly worshipful of Hitler. They have ideologues who have written tracts which say the Muslims of India are like the Jews of Germany. You know, they believe in eugenics and all of it. So I'm not talking loosely here. Wow. You know? Mm. They tick all the boxes. Yes, yes. They tick all the boxes and proudly, you know? Yes, yes. And uh, they, in fact, if you look at the uh, sort of alt-right in the US, they take great inspiration from RSS ideologues. There's been a lot of traffic between them. And, you know, the Hindu caste system, of course, and the idea of Aryan superiority and the idea that human beings are divided into castes yes. with Brahmins at the top and Dalits at the bottom is fascist, you know? It is. So, yes. yeah, I'm talking not loosely at all. Yeah, but strictly. Of course, it's uh, psychological, you know, it's inside people's heads because, uh, I mean, sadly, it isn't just uh, when you look at a society like in India, where you have people divided in a strict hierarchy into almost 4,000 castes, 
each one with someone to oppress and <laughs> each one with someone to be oppressed by. Mm. And you haven't really got a, a society which breaks this. You know, it's a very tiny percentage, I think less than five or three percent of people who marry outside caste here. Right. So it's a hierarchical way of thinking, you know? Yes. So I keep saying, unless that vertical line in our brain becomes horizontal, it's very easy to move into formal, proper fascism, you know? Yes. And you've made me also think about some of the cabinet members. So Britain's government is the most diverse, inverted quotes, that's ever been in power. But Rishi Hunak, Priti Patel, Sajid Chavid before he left, um, these are men and women from Asian backgrounds who enact the worst of the far-right conservative manifesto with glee, with glee, especially Priti Patel. And Priti Patel's attitude to immigrants, even though her parents arrived as refugees from Uganda, is one that's joyfully punitive. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, so that's why you have to look at who are these people and what have they said and done in their communities and in their past, you know? It's not that every black person or every Asian person is going to be radical. Uh, some of them are terrifying people. And, I mean, one of the biggest, um, longest uh, nonfiction works of mine is called The Doctor and the Saint, and it's about a debate between... Uh, Dr. Ambedkar, who is one of the most iconic leaders of the Dalit uh, people in India, and Gandhi, who was, who was his greatest antagonist, you know. And Gandhi sort of used to say that I, in my body, represent all the untouchables of India. And when you look at uh, Gandhi's battles in South Africa, you find such shocking stories, you know, like the first battle that he won was not the battle uh, that began with being thrown off a whites only coach in Peter Maritzburg. Yes. And then, you know, we are taught he began to fight segregation. This is completely false. He first, his first battle was to fight for a third uh, entrance in the Durban post office <laughs> because he did not want Indians classed with blacks. Yes. Yes. Right. And from there, Two years and years later, you see this consistent attitude towards black Africans, towards uh, untouchables, yeah. in quotes, as they were called then, towards women, towards working class people. So he was a fascinating person, a brilliant politician, but, you know, not enough has has, has been done to, 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 to say that you know, to rest a nation's conscience on this person is a very shaky business. Absolutely. And I, I have a complicated relationship to Gandhi. I visited his ashram in Ahmedabad a few years ago, and it was a place of beauty and rest and idealism. I think you could, it was palpable even then. But I am aware of his comments and behavior activities in South Africa and also of a, of a more general strain of anti-blackness and anti-Africanist uh, thinking in India and within the Indian diaspora. And the, the conflict with Ambedkar and what happened in the debates on caste and what was done mm. is, is very, very disturbing. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's very dangerous to turn anyone into a saint, especially a political figure. Mm. 
you t- you've been writing a lot recently about Indian or Hindu um, extremist Islamophobia. And as a Muslim, I've experienced British Islamophobia. You know, you become a connoisseur of Islamophobias. I know the French style. I know the American style. Tell me a bit about the Indian style of Islamophobia, the shape and focuses it takes. Oh, that's so hard to do. I mean, it's so many years of writing fiction and non-fiction about all the kinds of phobias here, you know, caste. And, mm-hmm. But I guess in India, now you're seeing a situation where, you know, Muslims have been pushed out of, more or less pushed out of the political arena. You don't have any big Muslim political leaders uh, mm. anymore. They have, they hardly, you hardly see them in mainstream journalism. There are a few, but hardly, hardly. Uh, they have been pushed down the economic ladder. And, and the most important thing is that the Hindu right wing has shown in election after election that it doesn't need the Muslim vote, you know. Mm. So in a sense, there's a kind of disenfranchisement, not legally, but effectively. So it's a very dangerous position for people to be in. And then I'm not getting into the fact of how many hundreds of people have been lynched, you know. When the the new uh, anti-citizenship, uh, I mean anti-Muslim citizenship law was passed, which is supposed to be coupled with what is called the National Register of Citizens, mm-hmm. and the huge protests that erupted which saw solidarity amongst people who were not just Muslim because that was going to affect everyone. But the reprisal against Muslims, the brutality towards them in prisons, all of it culminated in a massacre in Delhi. Mm. While Trump was there. Yeah, while Trump was here. And now you have hundreds of people being arrested, accused of... Literally, Muslims being accused of organizing a program against themselves, you know. And you have laws like the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, which which means uh, arrest and no bail. And therefore, even if there's no evidence, uh, you end up spending years in jail before you are let off, just because of, of this plodding legal process. So it's um, all-encompassing, you know, the... It's it's not just a one-off kind of insult somewhere. It's a systematic attack on minority communities. Christians, too, are being attacked in this way. Not lynched, but, Mm. you know, churches under threat. Uh, Then there's this whole way of attacking NGOs, uh, non-conforming NGOs, you know, through their funding. So, you know... Every, every, everything is under scrutiny, is under attack, and therefore we are effectively living in a country where all citizens are not equal, you know, not legally, not socially, not economically, obviously not economically, but Mm -hmm. they don't have the same rights, effectively. Right. To go back to your art and... To last night, I spent a happy few hours, a couple of hours, watching your film, in which Annie <laughs> gives it. <to> <laughs> yeah. In which Annie gives it to those yeah. ones, which you made in 1988 yeah. with Pradeep Krishna. Yes. 
It's a fantastic film. And I think you would have been the most amazing person to go to university with. (laughs) It shows your impish, funny, Uh. um, rebellious side in in all its glory. Mm. So I'd like us to talk about that time in your life. Yes. Uh, Well, I... um... I mean, as is obvious from that film, I studied um, architecture in Delhi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, you know, I, I come from Kerala, which is like the other end of the country. And about two years into my uh, study of architecture, I left home and, you know, since then have, you know, had a very angular relationship to anything that is called home. Mm. And so to me, Architecture somehow is very foundational, the study of architecture in everything that I do and write, even now. Right. I After I finished studying architecture, I, I, I kind of realized that I was hardly likely to be practicing it in any conventional way. I was very interested in cities and how they came to be what they are. Yes. I left uh, architecture school and decided to sort of drop out in I mean, I finished the course, obviously, but I went and I used to live in Goa where I tried to earn <laughs> a living selling cake and things like yes. that. But I came back and I met Pradeep quite accidentally and uh, he was making a, a, another film, a previous film to that. And he literally saw me on the street somewhere and, and asked me to if I would act in it. Yes. And I said yes, although I had no <laughs> desire to be an actress, really. I didn't think I'd be a good actress. You make a very good actress. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I, I did that film and then, you know, I wrote uh, Annie Gives It Those Ones and then we sort of, you know, managed to uh, make that into a film and then another one and then I wrote The God of Small Things. But it was a very, um, you know like we used to call it sort of lunatic fringe cinema. It was completely <laughs> uncommercial and unviable. But it feels very modern. It feels very much of this time. Yes, I mean, I think there was that uh, affection for language then, you know? Yes. Even when I was writing the screenplay, like the English that we spoke and the mix of languages, you know? Always mm. one has lived in this mix of languages hindi english malayalam urdu you know yes and so it's something that i now realize i'm always alert to you know yeah the the way and the different you know like writing annie gives it those ones and then writing the god of small things there's always a search for a language and that doesn't have doesn't mean english hindi spanish you know it means whatever language you're writing in a search to stretch it and not in a gimmicky way, but to, to, to make it include other languages and to suggest that this ocean of languages that one swims around in all the time. You know? Absolutely. And there's so much of you or what I perceive as you in the film. So you play a character called Rada, who's an architectural student, um, loves playing practical jokes on people. She's someone who doesn't fit into the typical role of an Indian woman and some of the other female students talk about her behind her back. There's that great scene in the loo where she's hearing all of the things they're saying about her. Yeah. But I just wanted to quote this part um, when Radha says, these are not buildings but piggy banks during her final degree show. And her teacher tells her, all architects feel guilt 
about the situation they're in, but it's important to separate your feelings from your art. Rada replies that it's important for architects, and I guess all other artists, to find out why what's happening is happening, to get under the skin of things. It seems as if you've taken that philosophy from architecture to screenwriting to fiction. Is that so? Well, I, you know, people people always ask me this uh, about this journey, you know, from architecture to acting to screenwriting to fiction to nonfiction. And, and I always say that, you know, the thing is, the inquiry has always been the same, you know? Mm. You just carry it through into different art forms and s- sometimes you think, what is the most effective way of of doing this? You know, is it a movie? Is it a building? Is it a novel? Is it an essay? You know? Yeah. I think the, the kind of discomfort with everything that is so easily accepted and especially if you're a woman in India, you know, mm. one fell out of the pan at a very early age. And at your age, 16 or 17, right? Yes. And no, but even before that, because, you know, my mother, uh, my mother, you know, was divorced and therefore came back to the village in Kerala. And so even when I was very young, it was made very clear to me that, you know, no one is going to marry you and you don't belong here and all of that. You know, even in inside my grandmother's house, I was told that. So you're always uh, sort of not ready to swallow everything that was put before you. Yes, and I think that's very clear from the film. And one thing that caught my eye is the Eve teasing and how Radha and perhaps you also dealt with all of the Eve teasing in Delhi. Oof, that was, I mean, it is really something that women have to go through on the streets all the time, you know, Mm. Uh, off the streets as well in more malevolent ways, but... Yes, I mean, Mm. it was another kind of conflict, you know, because as a young uh, student, you know, walking down the road, you you know, I came from Kerala, so there was a sense of, obviously, uh, a left-leaning person, you know, Mm -hmm. and then uh, you'd walk down the street and, you know, people who are really crushed and poor and working on, you know, tarring the roads and you know, broken, yeah. yet they would feel able to to say anything or do anything to, to you as a woman. Mm. So there's a big conflict there, you know? Yes. How do you, how do you look at this, you know? And how did you look at it? And how do you look at it now? With the same complexity, I think, you know, with the same complexity where you can't just make simple, you can't draw simple lessons from it, right? Mm. Because this is one thing that cuts through everything. For example, when the 2002 massacre happened in Gujarat of Muslims, you knew, you knew that there were women who are as supportive of those killers as there were men, you know. Mm. So it isn't that you can make, uh, I mean, that's a very fraught thread to pull through the fabric of anything. It is, it is. And I, I think your experiences growing up in a divorced family in one where your mother often had bouts of illness. So you had to, you had to grow up very quickly, you and your brother. Yeah. I mean, you in that place, because it was such a conventional place. So, you know, in a way you, you can see convention, caste, all of that class playing out. And then, but 
even within that, there were family kinships, you know. Mm-hmm. But me and my brother were out of it. Like, we didn't have it at all, you know. At all. At all. So, like, it was there ostensibly, but it was a place of violence and insult for us, always, you know. This mm. isn't your home. Why are you here? Why don't you leave? Who will marry you? All of that. So, you know, even today, I find myself n- not able to just uh, be there in the in the happy monsoon wedding scenario. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh, this is a transaction, really, behind all the cuteness. Children seek out some kind of mothering, fathering care. Did you find anyone to do that for you? Actually, I didn't uh, really seek out because I was so terrified by the whole thing. So when I left uh, Kerala and I came to Delhi and I joined the School of Architecture, uh, like that year was amongst the happiest in my life because I just felt so free to uh, 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 never go back, you know, like I thought, I'll just somehow manage, uh, and I did. I managed uh, with very little money and, you know, that in those days. And you didn't see your family for several years. Yeah, I never went back. My brother was very different. He he never lost faith in that idea. So he actually went and he found my father, who was, uh, you know, completely estranged. We didn't know who he was, but my brother found him. And then he was... He was almost destitute. Yeah, and he was, you know, addicted to alcohol, and but he was a very charming character, you know. In what ways? You know, just very irreverent and very, um, there was something light about his footsteps in the world, you know. He just had very simple de- desires, like, can can you just give me some money to buy whiskey? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't, he didn't. Was, With a wink. Yeah, there was no heavy kind of reunion Bollywood style or anything it was all just like <laughs> is there money in your bag you know even though like I was like 21 and I was like, I, you give me money you know I money. yes you've spoken much more about your mother uh, Mary Roy yes of course I she's a, <laughs> she's a character yeah she she really is <laughs> yeah and you've said that she is your creator as well as your destroyer Yes. So is she a creator in more than just the typical sense of having given birth oh, to Oh, yeah, you? yeah, yeah. She, she, she's, uh, while she made it hard for me in many ways to continue living with her, she also gave me the strength to leave. Yes. You know, she also gave me the confidence that I didn't need to get married to those people there and that I could just somehow find my way through it you know it sounds as if you're both what Toni Morrison called unmastered women you ran away at 16 17 I think your mother also ran away from home yeah she she didn't run away from home but you know she was living with her brother and then she met my dad and she just married outside of the ritual of the Syrian Christian community you know yes that was a cardinal sin and then she left him (laughs) she doubled up (laughs) yeah so You've said that you you think there's a book there about your mother. Well, my mother's in all my books in some form or shape. But yes, she does deserve a book. I don't know if I'll ever write it. but Well, I wrote about my father. Oh, you did? And Uh. I did, yes. And he had a crazy life. And again, I think Mm. 
he's a big part of why I am a writer and the kind of person I am. Mm. Um, the experiences he had, he, he suffered violence in various forms. He was a wanderer, a walker, mm. like Estepan in um, The God of Small Things. Yeah. Yeah. That ceaseless mm. walking is something very familiar to me. Mm. Mm. When do you think you started to understand your mother as a woman separate from being your mother? Always. I think from the time I was three years old, I saw her more as separate than as my mother, you know, which was a great big conflict for me because I always try to understand why she was so, uh, you know, distressed and furious and even violent. And, you, you know, I you always struggle to see it from outside of your relationship with her because it was to do with, what she felt was being done to her or had been done to her, you know? So I had to keep trying to see it that way. And even now, I I have, uh, you know, a great admiration for her uh, wrapped up in all sorts of things, you know? Yes, yeah. yes. Would this be a good time for you to read from the Ministry of Utmost Happiness? Sure. So this is... A chapter called The Tenant, and it's chapter 8. The spotted owlet on the street light, ducked and bobbed with the delicacy and immaculate manners of a Japanese businessman. He had an unobstructed view through the window of the small bare room and the odd bare woman on the bed. She had an unobstructed view of him too. Some nights, she bobbed back and said, Moshi, Moshi, which was all the Japanese she knew. Even indoors, the walls radiated a bullying, unyielding heat. The slow ceiling fan stirred the scorched air, layering it with fine, cindery dust. The room showed signs of celebration. The balloons tied to the window grill bumped into each other desultorily, softened and shriveled by the heat. In the center, on a low painted stool, was a cake with bright strawberry icing and sugar flowers, a candle with a charred wick, a matchbox, and a few used matchsticks. On the cake, it said, Happy birthday, Miss Jabin. The cake had been cut, a small piece eaten. The icing had melted and dribbled onto the silver foil covered cardboard cake base. Ants were making off with crumbs larger than themselves. Black ants, pink crumbs. The baby whose birthday and baptism ceremonies had been simultaneously celebrated and successfully concluded was fast asleep. Her kidnapper, who went by the name of S. Pilotama, was awake and concentrating. She could hear her hair growing. It sounded like something crumbling, a burnt thing crumbling. Coal, toast, moths crisped on a light bulb. She remembered reading somewhere that even after people died, their hair and nails kept growing, like starlight, traveling through the universe long after the stars themselves had died. Like cities, Fizzy, effervescent, simulating the illusion of life while the planet they had plundered died around them. 
She thought of the city at night, of cities at night, discarded constellations of old stars fallen from the sky, rearranged on earth in patterns and pathways and towers, invaded by weevils that have learned to walk upright. A weevil philosopher with a grave manner and a sharp moustache was teaching a class, reading aloud from a book. Admiring young weevils strained to catch each word that spilled from his wise weevil lips. Nietzsche believed that if pity were to become the core of ethics, misery would become contagious and happiness an object of suspicion. The youngsters scratched away on their little notepads. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, believed that pity is and ought to be the supreme weevil virtue. But long before them, Socrates asked the key question, why should we be moral? He had lost a leg in weevil World War IV, this professor, and carried a cane. His remaining five legs were in excellent condition. Airbrush graffiti sprayed on the back wall of his classroom said, Evil weevils always make the cut. Other creatures crowded into the already crowded classroom. An alligator with a human skin purse, a grasshopper with good intentions, a fish on a fast, a fox with a flag, a maggot with a manifesto, a neocon newt, an icon iguana, a communist cow, an owl with an alternative, a lizard on TV. Hello and welcome. You're watching Lizard News at 9. There's been a blizzard on Lizard Island. The baby was the beginning of something. This much the kidnapper knew. Her bones had whispered this to her that night. The said night, the concerned night, the aforementioned night, the night hereinafter referred to as the night when she made her move on the pavement. And her bones were nothing if not reliable informants. The baby was Miss Jabeen returned. Returned, that is, not to her. Miss Jabeen the first was never hers, but to the world. Miss Jabeen the second, when she was grown to be a lady, would settle accounts and square the books. Miss Jabeen would turn the tide. There was hope yet for the evil, weevil world because Miss Jabeen was come. Your writing is so free and playful and you've described it in the past as a kind of prayer. Yes. What do you think, you, well, writing fiction actually as a kind of prayer. What do you think you're praying for when you write fiction? Just that... Um, you know, that world which you see and you wish to communicate to those that don't see it, you know, mm -hmm. maybe like mm -hmm. to somebody you love that can't see it and you're saying, look, let me show you and let me pray to be able to show you, you know, to be able to translate what I'm seeing and hearing and feeling uh, with words so you're praying for the gift of words right yes and do you think that your novels have answered those prayers well i i mean obviously 
if I said yes, that would sound very smug, you know. <laughs> but when I say yes, I don't mean it because the novels are perfect or wonderful or anything. But I feel that both, in their own ways, have made my blood flow more easy in my veins and made my body relax. Right? I mean that I. I, I mean, both took a long time to write, and I just, uh, I just needed to do them in the way that they were done. And uh, that's not a comment on what people should make of them, but for me, they fulfill that purpose. You know? Yes, yes, which is all you can ask, really. Yeah. We have the question. From George Saunders, yes, gorgeous George, as I call him, <laughs> um, and it's your work so brilliantly shows us that the political and the personal cannot be separated. I wonder if you could talk a little about what you think the purpose of fiction is. What does it do better than any other art form? I think you know, in some ways, I would flinch away from assigning a purpose to fiction because that would at once reduce it, you know, because there's something so delightfully purposeless about it. But uh, I would say what I said to you in, when I was talking to you earlier, you know, that the need to write fiction for me arises when I wish to conjure up a universe and communicate it to somebody that I love, that, look, can you see what I'm trying to show you? But it's not a purpose. And the thing is that political and personal, you know, how deeply entwined they do become when writers and people and almost every human being in their own way feels the need to understand some kind of pain or discomfort or unease or, or marvel or wonder, you know, and I think... People who live in societies which have felt themselves to be superior and to be settled are uncomfortable when politics sort of shamelessly kicks open the door in a work of art or fiction, you know. But for us who do not live in those self-regarding societies are not uncomfortable when the door is kicked open <laughs> because almost everything and every moment, wherever you turn the the door ought to be kicked open, you know? Yes. So the idea that you're trying to make a situation where you, you're like trying to separate art from fiction is an artificial project by people who are comfortable and who do not wish the grass to be disturbed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And yeah, I think sometimes even the fiction that's meant to disturb that grass the, the ones that are selected, you know, maybe just it's like a small breeze <laughs> rushing over the grass rather than a real yeah. turning over of it. Yeah, and the thing is that things can be very uncomfortable for people. Like I, I can see that, you know, it's easier for people to embrace a book like The God of Small Things because it still has the coordinates that people are used to. It has a broken heart in the middle, but it has a family. It has yes. mothers and children and husbands and fathers and us. The Ministry of Utmost Happiness starts out with 
shards and shattered and broken things you know and the the family as a unit isn't there and so th- there's a great discomfort in what is going on here you know because even the basic uh, the basic texture of the book is not hasn't got coordinates that people are used to and did you actively reject them or do you think it just came out the way it came out yeah it just came out the way it came out i mean because i think what happens with people like myself is that one is always walking on the edge of things you know mhm just to change the subject a little bit um you're a very physical active person i think yes you move you used to teach um aerobics you used to teach yoga you've trekked into a jungle with maoists you go to the gym every day which i think is the most shocking thing <laughs> <laughs> how have you managed over this past year with lockdowns and just the the shrinking of life around you actually you know the the reason that uh, i think i'm like this is is also got has also got to do with my mother because she is a very severe asthmatic my mother and mm. so from the time i was 2 years old or 3 years old i could see her struggling for air and she used to often tell me that you know i uh i'm going to die or i may not be i don't know what will happen to you and so there was a real terror of this physical helplessness you know of a person and so from the time i've been in uh, school i've had this uh, sort of urge to be to be not like that if i can help it you know yes to use your body to its extremes yes yes a lot a lot yes so and the other the other joke that my friends have with me is that you have to be like this uh, self sufficient person right you can't like you can't depend on anybody to do anything so yes. if you're going to work out you have to be an instructor if you're going to you have, <laughs> you have to you have to do that whole thing you know so yeah it's not been hard because i am actually my own instructor yes and there's an addictiveness to it as well yeah but it's it it also and especially as you grow older it, it, you you're familiar with the body and there's a kind of humility that comes with it you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes i'm learning that yeah 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 My mum also has breathing issues and that mm-hmm. connection to, you know, this body that I come from and I belong to and keeping it going, keeping it alive. I think that's I've put my energies into her body <laughs> rather than my own. Yeah. My breathing used to be connected with her breathing when I was a child. I I just spent a lot of time thinking when she stops breathing i stop breathing you know yes yeah i relate mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. and did you do that thing as well where you thought if you breathe well she will breathe well everything i did so many things if i don't kill the mosquitoes that are biting me then she'll be okay and you know yes. if i don't yeah. do this then she'll be okay and <laughs> yeah that connection is something i've been thinking about a lot this year between mothers and children my mum had a terrible year healthwise mm. so it's made me think about childbirth whether i would have kids um whether it's too late what you know you haven't had children or you you have two stepdaughters yeah i've had since my mother ran a school mm-hmm. i from the time of being 5 years old have looked after children smaller than me right 
And I spent my entire teenage, till I was a teenager, looking after children. Then I looked after Pradeep's children, who are like my children, mm-hmm. you know. So, so you've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was like a lot of, lot of, lot of children in my life. Yes, always. me too. And I think it does exhaust that maternal urge quite, <laughs> quite quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's like in the way I live and the way I write and all that. Yeah a bit risky you know and if you look at all the women activists here in India so many of them don't have children because you know they know and it's true for artists as well women artists Mm. it it feels as if there has to be some trade-off yeah going back to the body I saw a lovely interview with you with Elle in India and it's a very irreverent interview at one point the the journalist tells you that you're not making any sense (laughs) (laughs) And I've noticed that with in, in India, the way that you're related to mm. is much more, I don't know if casual is the right word or familial. There isn't this placing of you as a in public intellectual on a pedestal. Oh, I mean, it's all, uh, there. Are, there's every kind of thing happening here, you know, obviously. <laughs> like there's that, there's the pedestal stuff, then there's being kicked off the pedestal, there's anti-national, <laughs> there's, you know, tie her to a jeep. Um, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yesterday there was a huge uh, storm in Tamil Nadu because some university removed a book of mine that they were teaching, Walking with the Comrades, actually, that travelogue in the forest, by mm-hmm. because the right wing was protesting. And then, you know, I, I was like, you know, it's not my job to fight for my books to be on a syllabus. Like, it was my job to write it. Now someone else can do that battling yeah. if they want <laughs> yes yeah yeah and I guess the level of success you've had and the attention both from the publishing world the political world has been so overwhelming or at least I would find it overwhelming is how have you managed to maintain connections with people to not to not withdraw from that well I mean Partly perhaps because I live here, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. as you say, I get treated badly. <laughs> I'm not, it's, not, it's not like I have bought into this place where I just go to festivals and, you know, there's, I'm, yes. I'm in the tumult of everything that's happening here, you know. Yeah. The solidarity, the insult, the danger, the jail, the press court, whatever it is. So it's like, it's a choice that I made to never become a celebrity even if people want to call me that you know and however one lives in this world in as equal a way as possible in complete solidarity with others who have you know whose minds I respect and who do great work and may not have you know got money out of what they do and I you know because my books sell a lot I have I'm able to kind of spread it around and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is great. You've reminded me of a question that I wasn't quite sure if I should ask or would ask. And it's about this concept of artistic selling out. And you definitely haven't done that. You know, you've remained in India. You've, you avoid many of these kind of glitzy festivals. You haven't signed up with any big corporations in fashion or whatever, you know, to sell their products. And it's so alluring. And even for writers who can make a living and a good living from their work, the attraction and I think the glamour of it is so strong that it's difficult to say no to. 
So how have you navigated? Did you feel any of that attraction or did you just think, no? No, no, I didn't, I didn't feel any of that mm-hmm. attraction. I started uh, in reverse gear <laughs> the minute I won the booker, like that evening. I was like, okay, let's back out of here, you know? And why is I, that? I don't know. It's just not, I, it's never something that interested me to, to, to be part of that. And I, I think it's also grounded in, in, in my political self, you know, and who I am. I wasn't, that wasn't ever where I was going to go, you know. I was never somebody who, like, I was very uncomfortable already with whatever, you know, money, God, the God of small things made. or the It was enough for me. I didn't need any more. And yes. then, you know, so it, it's a headache to kind of, have the responsibility of, of of sharing it in in solidarity now, which is what I do. But that's a lot of work, you know. Yeah. Because you can't just throw money around at people. But I'd rather have not been in that space. Like I, I would. I'm not complaining about. I like. I like being financially independent. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's more than financial independence that I have. Yes. So that means that you 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 share it. You know, Absolutely. That's what it to me. Yeah. Yes. And um, I think that the central idea or philosophy of being able to say I have enough is anti-capitalist. Yeah. I, I'm also not a Gandhian, you know, so I don't believe in all this sacrifice and mm-hmm. sackcloth and ashes stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm okay with being on the cover of L and Wedding <laughs> But, you know, it doesn't take a lot. I mean, it's just fun and a yes. bit of fun. There's nothing... I think it's just a way of balancing how you want to walk. Yeah. I've actually got a quote here from that interview with Elle magazine where you appeared on the cover and they asked you, why? Why have you done it? And you said, it's time for Cinderella's wicked older sisters who were too smart to go around wearing glass slippers to come out and take their place in the sun. (laughs) (laughs) And then they asked you, why Elle in particular? And you said, because I have seen dark-skinned women on Elle covers. I love that. I'm a black yeah. woman. Most of us are. Ninety yeah. percent of us are. This obsession that Indians have with white skin and straight hair makes me sick. We need a new aesthetic, and I've seen Elle trying to do that. It's true. I mean, it's like uh, you know, whether you're in South India, North India, you look at Bollywood. You imagine you look at Bollywood that India is a place of white people, mm, right? Mm. Even now, I mean, yeah. you know, fair and lovely and beauty filters on the camera. Yes. And of course, you know, I was constantly being told, "Oh, she would have been nice looking if she had been a little fairer." And you heard that from a very young age, I'm guessing. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. So, how did you not? reject that because people do reject that and they spend a fortune on whitening creams and you know just trying to fit into this paradigm I don't know I mean I did the opposite I still put oil on myself and lie in the sun (laughs) and become I mean I think just aesthetically I never wanted to be white you know Uh so I, I didn't find it find any reason to straighten my hair or whiten my skin yeah it wasn't even politics I just didn't it wasn't something that I wanted to be, you know. So your writing routine, are you able to write at the moment? Um, I write. I have written little things, you know, but they all 
just small things that I have not got into a routine. Actually, honestly, you know, when the lockdown happened, I had just come off a crazy amount of traveling with the Ministry of Utmost Happiness because it's been translated into 53 languages wow. or something. So I was so grateful not to have to travel. I was really happy mm-hmm. to just be at home. And yes. uh, so it, it's a break, you know, it's that moment of uh, taking uh, breathing. And I think the pandemic has really made uh, the rupture uh, it has, of course, made me feel uh, like not able to walk uh, the streets as I do and travel in India and go to places and, you know, the the, the things that are uh, what give you the texture and smell of what you need to work on. So all that sort of did get interrupted. And I do think that uh, this coronavirus also makes you rewire your brain into trying to think what's going to happen because it's a very profound moment in the world and I don't want to rush to you know just think that I understand it when I think all of us are grappling with an understanding. We are we definitely are and we're all seeking out comforts of different kinds so what are your comforts? My comforts are my my friends my dogs Mm -hmm. Filthy John and <laughs> Begum Filthy John and Marty Kellal. Those are big names for your dogs. Those are big names. How did Begum Filthy John get her name? Begum Filthy John. She's a, she's a tiny little uh, white, like a little bleached olive seed that was left outside my gate. Her mother. She was born in the drain outside my house, and her mother got hit by a car. And she's a white dog, and you know. As a puppy, she was always like getting that white filthy, so I called her filthy John. Marty, I stole her. You know, like she used to be tied by a rope to a lamppost somewhere. Okay. Eventually, anyway, the people said you can take her. But did you get in trouble for stealing her? No, no. I then told the people that I'm. They didn't want her. That's why they 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 abandoned her. Yeah. She Marty ke lal means beloved of the earth. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Arundhati, for spending this time with us. You're so welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Love to you, Arundhati. Take care. Love to you all. Bye. Bye-bye. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. In our show notes, you can read more about what Arundhati Roy and Nadifa Mohammed talked about. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and tune in for our next episode, which will be out in December.